Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest on today's episode of Mike's Search for Meaning is Janine Serendolo. Janine is a holistic life coach whose mission is to help people reconnect with their inner wisdom and creativity so they can experience greater love, freer self-expression, and clarity of direction. Over the past decade, Janine has worked with thousands of clients to support their personal and professional growth through individual coaching and group facilitation. She holds a master's degree in clinical psychology from Columbia University, a group coaching facilitation certification, and a yoga teacher certification. Through her writing, Janine offers her experiential toolkit to help readers activate the authentic joy, confidence, and serenity of coming home to their true selves. Additionally, I'll be donating to and raising awareness for the organization or charity of my guest choice. This episode, the organization is Lift. Please join me in donating. Any and all donations make a difference, and the link is in the show notes. And as a holistic life coach, Janine has so many beautiful interests that contribute to the fabric of humanity and to wholeness. We talk at first in the beginning of this conversation about parts work, which is one of the foundations of her work. I have came into parts work or rather a different understanding of parts work through Richard Schwartz's internal family systems, but both of them have very similar core tenets. They each posit that we are comprised of, well, what Janine would say are about nine to 20 parts. This isn't scientific. It's just a ballpark estimate, but some classic players are the inner critic, the muse or the dreamer. There's practical and pragmatic parts. There's maybe the skeptic, the people pleaser. And there are some parts of ourselves that we probably identify with or even over identify with. And there are some maybe more repressed parts of ourselves. And Janine and I explore how all of the parts of ourselves have something special to contribute to who we are. We also do a lot of exploration around embodiment. Janine is a yoga instructor and she loves to dance. We talk a little bit about ecstatic dance. There's lots of ways that she incorporates the body into her work. And in my estimation, I think it's important for almost any practitioner and any human to be incorporating embodiment into your life and into your work. We do a lot of exploration around creativity. And perhaps my favorite part of the conversation is when Janine recites her poem. It's called The Love Inside. There's also an incredible rendition of it on YouTube, and I link it in the show notes. And she reads an Alan Watts poem. And you could tell by the way that Janine recites each of these that she's a true artist. And I name that in this conversation. That's probably what I most appreciate about the way that she does all of her work. She brings an artist mindset and creativity into the work. And that's why she's such an amazing, holistic life coach. I really enjoyed having this conversation with her. Her and I have since developed a friendship, and she's someone that I want to keep in touch with for a very long time. 
I think that you will get that vibe from her as well. That she's just a warm presence and someone that you'd want to have around in your life. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath. And enjoy what Janine has for us today. Janine, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Ever since we first connected, I've really been looking forward to having you on. I, I named in our first email exchange, there's just something about your energy, even in the email inbox, that is warm and inviting and connecting. And I really trust that that is going to be transmitted to the listener, whoever tunes into this. So just off the bat, I wanted to name that. Thank you. I appreciate your curiosity and compassion that has shined through in our interaction so far as well. And I'm psyched to see what emerges in this conversation. <laughs> Me too. And thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as you know, because we've done a little bit of preparation beforehand, the first question that I'm going to ask you is what were you like as a child? What was young Janine like? Mm, so uh, it's so interesting because this is mixed. I think this will lead into some of our later conversation about parts of ourselves. But on the one hand, I, I love family videos. Like it's one of my favorite things is like looking back. So I see in that like a playful, sweet girl who's like, you know, teaching her brother ballet, just by he probably doesn't want to know that in that moment um, and improvising and doing talent shows and just the whole thing. So my mom, I asked her too, I was like, what was I like as a kid? And she's like, oh, you were like so silly and fun and always like trying to dance on every street corner, like a lot of dancing and couldn't put a book down, which was true. I wanted to be a writer when I grew up. So I was reading voraciously. But my memory of myself is more serious, is more like shy, actually. And so I have this other part that like, I remember as very quiet and observant and yeah, even very sensitive, which has not changed, but like that sensitivity in all sorts of ways I feel is there. So it's interesting to kind of contrast my experience of what I thought I was as a kid versus what I see and hear on the external about it. So mm, yeah, it's very interesting. I think this is this is very neatly going to go into this work, <laughs> yeah. but I think where, where I'm curious right now is because I, I can relate to this. I, I was very quiet. I was very reserved. I was very shy as a kid. I experienced myself to be awkward. Mm -hmm. And if I name that to another person, sometimes they're very surprised. And one random piece of feedback I've gotten from a longtime friend is that I always experience you to be a leader, Mike. You are always marching to the beat of your own drum. Mm -hmm. And I always felt that I was this conformist who was really scared <laughs> of what other people thought of me. So it's, it's really interesting how we can see ourselves some way and other people see us another way. Yes, I totally agree with that. And I got similar feedback in sixth grade, walking across a room and someone be like, you always walk with a purpose. Like, you know, lead people to their own homes in the wrong direction. When I like visit someone, they're like, I don't live there. I'm like, oh, I don't know where we're going. And I agree. I think like a lot of people say this and I have, I have felt this that like, if you're a little anxious or uncomfortable inside, some people will be like, oh, you have such a calming presence. And you like look over your shoulder, like, who are they talking about? <laughs> Darn me. So yeah, it's, it's interesting that that do dynamic balance of the internal versus the external. So between there's, I'm sure there's other aspects, of course, that you haven't named so far in the conversation, but were, were there parts of yourself that you were more celebrated for or that internally you celebrated yourself more mm -hmm. for? Were there parts of yourself that you didn't like? And as you started to mature, mm -hmm. 
where did you start to place your energy or identify most with? Mm, lots of good juicy questions. Okay, so the first one, I celebrated or felt celebrated for creativity and joy and an expression. So that was awesome. And, and giving, I, I was big in a Catholic upbringing. So it was a lot of like service orientedness. So making a difference in some way that was celebrated and something I really cared about in, in whatever ways that evolved. And parts that I didn't like as much, the sensitivity I had to grow into liking because that ends up with a lot of cry fests, you know, and like doesn't always feel good. So I think that sensitivity lends itself to the empathy and the care that would motivate me to do the things that I like to do in, in helping others and, and, and other things, but sometimes can get in my own way, right? In terms of like, there's a double-edged sword to sensitivity, right? So everything has maybe a shining and a shadow. And then what was your third, the third question? There's like the third one. I think uh, it just, I, that, that there's, there's a way that I know a, a lot of people, I, when, are, when you're praised for a certain way of being or doing, that, that mm -hmm. becomes really rooted in your identity and maybe a, a part of yourself that you lean on more than other parts of yourself. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably the the giverness, like the the focus on on helping others, I think that was probably it then. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So I, I have I have a lot of curiosities. I, <laughs> I tend to do this as a question asker. You already kind of named like there's a lot in there, a lot of juicy questions. I'm gonna slow it down and just do one at a time. Yeah. Could you explain a little bit about what sensitivity means to you from your lens today? Hmm. Yeah. This is a great question. I think, I think it's like an attunement to the world, both the outer world and the inner world. And so for me, it's like a calibration to something that matters, that you care about, something that's precious to you. And then a, a response to that emotionally, at least for me, like when my sensitivity is like taking on empathically, uh, like somebody can tell me a story I'll have tears in my eyes like in 10 seconds like you know there's just that sense of like you know when I think about even what love means which is tangential but related it, to me it means like what's important to you is important to me that's like one aspect of love and so I think sensitivity kind of does that in some ways it's like I'm I'm open to feeling deeply all the things so so yeah so I I feel like I've always been a deep feeler. And as I said, that has, that means that sometimes it's hard and it's a struggle and it's like managing all those, all those deep emotions sometimes when you're like, I got to do the laundry. Like, what is this feeling doing right here? Right now? <laughs> but, but at the same time, I feel like it's actually what fuels my work both creatively, but also as a, as a coach is like being able to sit with someone and be like, yeah, I get that. Like I really do, you know, and even if they don't know my story, which they often don't, cause that's not the role of it. It's like, it's in my listening, right? It's like in how I, how I hold this space mm -hmm. yeah I can really relate to that it, mm -hmm. it sounds like on one hand when you were younger it was looked at as a challenge maybe mm -hmm. being sensitive mm -hmm. and a lot of in my experience a lot of coaches tap more into our sensitivity and, and their sensitivity mm -hmm. and leverage that as uh, one of our greatest strengths as, yeah. a, as an empath as a listener when it comes mm -hmm. to compassion being able to relate to others. But anyway, I want to put that aside for a second. We, hmm. Maybe we'll revisit it as we explore Hart's work. But mm -hmm. one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on was to explore this modality. And we, we have unique vantage points on what Hart's work means, but 
I would love to hear what brought you into parts work. I know that you were trained a, a while ago. So what, how did, how did you land on this as a, a modality that meant something to you? Yeah, I think it was about 2010, 2012, somewhere in there. I lived in Colorado in Estes Park for a year and I was doing my second AmeriCorps job and there are a lot of fun friends who are into therapy and healing modalities and, and training at Naropa and all these things. And so one of them recommended a mentor therapist coach named Katie Asmus. And I got to meet her and do just two or three sessions, honestly, before I moved to New York city. So we did two or three sessions. And in that she introduced me to the concept. She was like, there are parts of yourself. You can name them. You can describe them. They can talk to each other. You can draw them. You can dance them. Like, let's do this. And within those two or three sessions, I, it just clicked, you know, there's a lot of talk in the spiritual and therapeutic spaces of inner child, or at the time, even inner child and her mentor and her critic, like it all just made sense. And from there, I just kind of kept incorporating what I already knew and, and those concepts and kind of building with this new uh, lens of parts. And I think a lot of people, as, as funny as it sounds to talk about when we talk about parts, I think a lot of people, when they hear about it, they're like, oh, this is so like, it just like, I get it. You know, it's like makes, it's like a new lens, but it's not new. You know, it like, it actually hits something very deeply profound that that is just resonant for a lot of us. So. Mm -hmm. And pop culture wise, I know you, you speak about this in your book and I've heard you speak about it in other appearances. Inside Out is a, a wonderful demonstration of what parts work can look like. Could you explain a little bit about why that is and what, what is it in Inside Out that demonstrates parts work? Yeah. So the story is told, the protagonist Riley is like a 12 year old girl or something. And she she has this console of emotions in her head, right? So the story is mainly around joy, sadness, fear, disgust, and anger who live in her, her consciousness, right? And so what's in parts can be emotions like that in my, my view, right? They can be roles, they can be, they are whole beings who might include an anger or whatever. They're not just so pigeonholed, but, but it, it, that's one way to kind of look at them just these different sides. And, and I've heard mothers be like, this is so helpful for me with my five-year-old because instead of being like, oh, he wants to hit another kid and because he's angry and like, you're a bad kid or you're a bad, you're doing a bad thing. It's like, you have a part of you who's angry and who thinks the best strategy is to like hit someone right now. Like maybe Maybe we can talk about the other parts or why that, and so it, it takes you away from it, from identifying fully with that part's actions, behaviors, desires. And so I think Inside Out is a perfect demonstration as I write in the book. It's, it's kind of funny how like sadness, which we've talked about in sens as sensitivity being kind of like one of the side effects of that gets a bad rap. And, and in our culture, I'd say too, you know, it's like quit being sad. No, ain't nobody got time for that. Let's keep going. Mm -hmm. But she becomes like the hero of the, and no spoilers, but <laughs> long story short, we get to see that like sadness has a role and, and keeps, keeps things real in a way that, that, it, that highlights the appreciation of all the moments and how they work together. Mm -hmm. I would love to start with maybe the emotional landscape as one, it's one element of parts work. And mm -hmm. you, you already named that sadness is something that societally is it's poo-pooed or looked at as something that we need to eradicate and get rid of, or that we, we don't have time for it. Mm -hmm. Could you speak to, it could be a generic example. It could be a personal example mm -hmm. of how we could stick with sadness first. Mm -hmm. What is, if you were in touch with what sadness might be here to teach you or what the, the benefit is, if you will, of yeah. sadness, what, what would be a tangible reason? Mm -hmm. 
For me, a lot of sadness is, is grief, actually. And grief is the flip side of something that we love, right? And Martin Prechtel, in his book, uh, The Smell of Rain on Dust, I believe, talks a lot about grief and praise, right? And how connected they are. And so I, I feel like the sadness is like, I've lost something or I will lose something, or this is like irreplaceable, or I, and because I care, right? It's like, it's so much our heart. And I, I know people when they get to a place of like not being able to cry or they're like, oh, I wish I could cry. You know, like I feel so numb, right? And so the sadness almost feels like it's partly an aliveness. It's like, it's like if you're paying attention, like something's gonna make you sad at some point as a human, right? Like, so, um, so I feel like it does, it does have that role of showing us and, and being like crying for me is like a release valve, you know? It's like, it's like a little like, just letting that go and letting it be seen and known. And for me, it always feels better. I know people, some people hate to cry, but I love it. <laughs> me too, Janine. <laughs> I really do. Sometimes I purposely sit down to watch, especially, you know, it, it's really interesting on airplanes. I love watching movies that make me cry. Like the last mm. flight I was on, I watched a, another animated movie. Those tend to make me cry. <laughs> yes. Me have you seen Coco oh, yes, I have. Yes. Good I've one. probably seen it three or four times. And I think mm -hmm. that I've cried every single time and I seek it out. I mean, I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. watching it just for my heart to feel warmer. I, mm -hmm. I genuinely feel the same release valve is activated. And as another footnote, maybe I'll, I want to introduce, because I, I was just exploring this with my coach that on a personal level, anger has historically been the thing that I don't do. And we can, mm -hmm. we can get more into that in this mm -hmm. conversation on why that is. But sadness is always something that I've been relatively comfortable with. And mm. one of the things that my coach does so well is he invites me into, what is it that you, he, he brings the genuine curiosity. Like, what is, what's great about the sadness? Why would you want to be sad? Mm -hmm. And the example that came to me is there's, there's a way in which like, I'm interested in Buddhism and I, in a lot of ways, I try and create detachment in, in my life and not be so married to outcomes and results. Mm -hmm. But I don't want to be completely detached from my life. And yes. what I said was if, for example, if my house were to burn down or something, if, if something really extreme happened, I think the Buddhist way of looking at that would be, it's just a thing. Life on, you're going to be okay you don't need things right. as a human to flourish mm -hmm. but and I think ideally I would want to really grieve that there's so many yeah. beautiful memories there's so many podcasts I recorded there's so many beautiful memories I have with my wife there's so many everyday mm -hmm. moments that the house reminds me of and in a way I think the beauty of sadness is it helps us remain connected to what matters to us and that letting go of something is really hard. <laughs> yes. Oh, hand wiggle for all of that. Um, okay. So many thoughts and reflections on this. So first of all, on the, on the, you know, animated films, making you cry, like finding Nemo makes me cry, like yeah. all the things. And, and my favorite show is this is us because it's uh, yeah. crying every episode. So lo love all of that. When you said about not doing Ang or not doing anger, but more comfortable with sadness. That's so interesting because I'm the same way. And I think part of that is it feels kinder. Like I can, sadness is just, mm -hmm. I'm like hurt by myself in a corner, right? Anger is like, you did something. I'm mad at you and you're externalizing. And that just feels like super 
foreign country. So actually like reclaiming a, a, a relationship with anger or like claiming it in the first place and learning that is like a good practice for those of us who lean to be more internalized and in the sad department. Um, around Buddhism and detachment, I definitely had a phase in college where I was reading awesome books like Buddhism Without Beliefs and loving loving my Buddhist Sangha sits and all that. And I was also loved acting. And I like went through a period where I didn't audition for anything because I was like, well, that's so egoic, like caring about my personality. Like, no, I must be detached. Like this whole thing, which I regret. Like looking back, I'm like, but I love to act. Like, I, you know, I just own that. Like I like being on stage, right? So so I think that that metaphor of like the house and things burning down to me, it's not that you don't, you don't grieve that and that's because you're so detached that it doesn't touch you. I think in my understanding, I'm not a Buddhist, but like my understanding of it is like in meditation, like you're sitting and you're witnessing and holding that. And again, this relates so well to parts work. The sad part of you is there, but it's not the entire experience. So there's a mm. wiser self or the witnessing consciousness or the, the kind of perspective that there is something, someone, some self, no self, whatever it is that you are witnessing the one who's also grieving and allowing but you allow that to move through like to me it's like you still meditation is not I have no thoughts it's I'm a blue sky that allows the clouds of thoughts to come and go right so so yeah so that would be my my thought about like please cry about your, all the things burning down in your house like I think that would get really stacked like suppressed if you didn't right but like that doesn't mean I, I think there's a slight difference between being overwhelmed by it and like letting that traumatize you forever versus being able to hold even yourself in the in that moment mm -hmm. yeah well thank you for that distinction that that yeah. rings a lot truer to me it is in my experience of meditation and buddhism is more akin to what you said it's mm -hmm. uh it's the both end right mm -hmm. it's let's really grieve this and it is sad and you are going to be just fine and that mm -hmm. isn't what actually defines you and, and determines your mm -hmm. level of happiness and, and well-being in your life Absolutely. So, in a way, I think that's why parts work has become so popular is it mm. honors all of the differences or, or the seeming, the seemingly clashing differences mm -hmm. in us and gets to the heart of our core needs are pretty similar, even though mm -hmm. our strategies might be a lot different or the, mm -hmm. our part strategies rather might be a lot different. Yes. And so I, I would love to hear you expound on that. Mm. Yes, in terms of, um, can you like hone in on like a little question yeah. there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the reasons that many of us, certainly me, I became entrenched in parts work and it became something that was really valuable for me because mm -hmm. I had, let's just say I had a part of me that, let's make it specific, a part of me yeah. that really wanted to be outwardly successful in all of the classical traditional American ways mm -hmm. and parts of me that valued equanimity and gratitude for where I am mm. and that I just want to be present and I have enough in my life. Why am I striving so hard for more? Yes. And in a lot of different ways, these parts kept clashing with each other over and over and over again with, with lots of different ways. Mm. And at the heart of parts work, we can reconcile these two parts that seem to really hate each other they probably have a lot of 
similarities in terms of what it, what it is that they truly want underneath it all. Mm, yes. Yes. I think that's right. And I think that's even, even relationships, right. I mean, you can think about a couple fighting that's like externally. And I think that's where for, for Schwartz, for Richard Schwartz, who founded the internal family systems, this comes from family seeing out external families, right. He's a family systems thinker. So when you see people fight they're like, Oh, well it's, I love this distinction. Right. And this comes from nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg around the needs and strategies. So the need, the, the strategy is like, well, you have to stop doing this thing because it bothers me. And the other thing, person's like, why? And like one person needs order. And it's like, I want all the things, you know, picked up before we go to sleep because then they'll give me order in the house. And the other person's like, I just want to go to bed, right? Like, or whatever the fight is about. And so the strategies are so different, but it's like, well, what do you both need underneath? And can you meet, can you find a different strategy that actually meets both your needs? And so I think sometimes we just jump to solutions and that's in, in the context of parts. The part is like, cool, you want comfort? I'm going to eat this whole bag of cookies. And it's like, okay, well, you have another part, you know, fitness focused Francesca, and she doesn't want you to eat a whole bag of cookies. So now you're pissing her off. So kind of saying like, oh, we can take a bubble bath, you know, like that will be comforting, but won't, you know, rock the boat on any of the other parts. So I like to have people sometimes just think, okay, what is the underlying need? And there's a great needs inventory list on the nonviolent communication website. And you can look and be like, oh, I want peace right now. Or it feels like I need to have a need for belonging. And then be like, okay, list five to 10 ways that you could meet that need. Mm. So like, you know, go to this social outing, call my friend, write them a letter, whatever. There's probably a ton of different ways. And then you can decide, okay, of all the strategies I came up with, what feels most aligned for all the parts involved, parts of me, because one part might want to do one thing. And then when the other wants the exact opposite, then you're in a stalemate. Right. And, and often they're, they feel like they're equally at odds, right? If it were one was dominating, which sometimes happens too, that then they always get their way, but that's still that voice being louder. Doesn't mean it's the right one to listen to. Right. It's just like the one who's the most agitated in that moment, perhaps. Yeah. I, so I've been loving the way that we're dancing around this, but mm -hmm. I, there's a part of me that's placing myself in, there's a part of me. Yeah. That's, that's placing myself in the listener's shoes. And I, I want to rewind a little bit yeah. and, and almost from the top, if someone were showing up to work with you mm -hmm. and they, they, they know what you're up to, they know that you do parts work. It sounds kind of interesting to them. Mm -hmm. They know it would be helpful. Where would you start with that person? So I only use it in my coaching. I only use it when it's, when it, the situation calls for it. I'm not like, Hey, I'm a parts work coach. Come to me and we'll just do parts work all day long. Mm -hmm. So often I actually prefer it when the person doesn't know anything about parts work. It's actually like, it's like, there's no expectation. There's no like trying to force the situation to be something. It's not like, there's no, it's like m most of the time, because for the last 10 years that I've been doing parts work, it, it hadn't blown up in the same way that it is now, you know, like people would come like, Oh my God, what just happened? I feel like I was on like some kind of drug trip or like a lucid dream or something just happened that I had not expected. And it's like very cathartic and very powerful. I mean, it still is that way, even if you know about it, but, but I feel like there's something to the element of like that receptivity of just showing up and being open to being guided and seeing what you see and both just going with it. And so for me, I usually use parts work Sometimes after like a, a breakup, like when there's a transition, either like a decision fork in the road or an emotional moment, like a breakup. So in the, in the case of a breakup, it would be, this comes from drama therapy, this empty chair technique, not to get too technical, but it's like, 
say you broke up with someone, you don't have that much closure. Not that closure is a thing that you like come and tie everything in neat bow, but you, you know, you feel really upset about it. And we can do an exercise where you get to speak to the person that, you know, you broke up with and then hear them respond back to you from your own inner self. And it's usually very healing because it's not, it's not what's actually been said in the real world, but it's also not just what you think you want to hear. If that makes sense. Because sometimes you're like, Oh, if you, if you're trying to channel what you think they'd hear it'd be like, well, they would never say that. I don't believe that. But you're actually dialoguing on the level of like the heart, right? Like really deep, like the unsaid things or even what we talked about with anger. You could just, you maybe you never cuss them out. You need to cuss them out and get that off your chest. So you do that in a safe container in this guided visualization, in the parts work. And a part of you is like, I never felt heard or I needed this from you or whatever. And then you go back and you see what, what they might be like or how they might respond. And, and I've had clients feel like, oh my gosh, that feels like I, they feel like they got to get something from that person. The person wasn't even there. Like they just, that's all on their own, you know, and they can move on from there. Like there's something that gets put to bed or at rest and a little bit more ease because they get to experience the, again, like that, that truth, that tuning into some kind of truth that normally when you're telling stories in your mind, like this person never loved me or I'm rejected or all that stuff, you're not getting to the underlying needs or the heart of it. So. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear you talk about, so we've already named that we, we have lots of different parts and a lot of times we create dialogues between two of them. So how many parts traditionally do, I know that we're all unique, but Mm -hmm. there's probably a range that exists for how many parts we typically identify and, and what does it look like for two parts to be in dialogue with each other? Sure. So as far as the number, Katie Asmus taught me from her lineage that it's nine to 20. So I always keep it in that realm. That feels like a good amount, like less than nine, maybe too few, more than 20. Now we have a crowded, too many cooks in the kitchen. I believe that Schwartz has said that there, that parts can have parts. So that it's like an infinite little like uh, amount of, of parts, but uh, I like to keep it to a list of nine to 20 to start. And it's always evolving, right? So some of them fall off. I forget about them. Others add, like, I don't have like a rigid, like, here's my inner team forever. In terms of dialoguing, I usually use dyads that are in opposition for a dialogue. So the ones that are just most opposed and and classically it's some version of a muse dreamer kind of creative type who's very adventurous and excited and the critic who's like, don't you even think about doing that? Like that is such a bad idea, (laughs) you know? I, I think other other times, and we've talked about this a little bit, you know, like you can, you can talk to an inner child or a wounded child or a higher self and all that. But I think those, I mean, sometimes I have like a whole group on the field. It's like, mm-hmm. and, and the parts can come if you're doing the thing with the, with the exes, for example, you can bring that person's higher self and your higher self. And maybe you're not, not usually in a relationship where you're like, your wise ones are also in dialogue behind you. Right. And so that their wise one might say something differently to you than their personality would. I know this is kind of getting like into the weeds yeah. here with this. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I want to, like, I know your book does such an amazing job of outlining all the ways in which we can identify that. And, mm-hmm. and so what would be like mapping is one of the ways to track your parts, right? So if, yeah. if you could just explain a little bit about what mapping is, parts mapping, and yeah. there's also a beautiful way in which it shows these are the kind of relationships between the parts. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that. Sure. So before mapping, I think is just identifying, like make a list and just be like, who are the players? And then a a few words about each of them, because then you get a sense. And 
as I said, some of them can come up as you work with more parts, others will emerge and some are kind of like the twin of that one or the cousin of that one that are like related or in clusters. So the mapping is exactly to kind of identify those relationships. So I like to suggest that you have a big blank piece of paper and you start with whichever one calls you first and just put it on the piece of paper. That could be the loudest one. Like, oh, my critic is really big and you can even make a big circle or use colors or use lines, like really get creative with how you kind of diagram this. But the idea is to get them all in relationship to each other. So you're you have them on the paper and you're like, oh, I didn't know that the critic and the muse, I thought they'd be as far away as possible on the paper. And they're actually butting heads and they're like right next to each other right here. Cause then they're just as big as, as the other one or, or the wise one is like the entire paper, or she's like really small in the corner. Cause I never listened to her or whatever. Right. And so you kind of get this visual map or visual aid of what these parts inside you are doing and in relationship to each other because yeah yeah it's really interesting how they they bring out look if I'm doing a parts work activity where there's a few of them in a guided visualization it's checking in like the muse and the critic might be at, at odds but when the wise one enters that has a whole new dynamic it's like a group dynamic so the wise one enters and they can acknowledge the other ones and that can soften the other ones start feeling understood. And then, you know, the whole group, the whole scene changes. So I always check in like, what's that person thinking about that person? How's that person feeling about that person? And, and then we get like a lot more information. So I think the parts map is a way for you on your own to kind of start getting a sense of that. Mm -hmm. Now I'm imagining a lot of people who are listening are thinking, the inner critic is not good. Got to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, banish what, it. Why is that? Why is the inner critic here? We need to get rid of that part. Yeah. Could you explain why that is not the case and, and why every part has a strategy and intends well, probably? Yeah, I think so. And Richard Schwartz's new book is No Bad Parts, right? I believe that's the name mm -hmm. of it. So the, the idea that all parts are are there for a reason. I, I think you don't banish them because they're a part of you. It's just that they're built in. So that's going to be hard. So you can try to suppress it. But I do think the more we avoid it, right, it gets louder, actually. So it's almost counterproductive. I like to think of the inner critic with, and, and I put this in the book of this, I was meditating once and had this like image come to me of a guard like a, like guarding something like the, the, tons of armor and like the sword and the shield. And then just like being like on the defensive and squinting his eyes and just being like, none shall pass, you know, like really tense and constricted. I feel like the inner critic sometimes is like that. Like it's just really like grasping and tense and uh, scared. And so that's why we're like, this feels yucky. Let's just get rid of this. But the, the, when you listen to it and like, okay, it say the inner critic has a reason for being. And if we can welcome it a little bit, you see that it's just mostly scared, right? It's like, mm -hmm. we have some kind of knowledge or presupposition that this is not going to go well and it's trying to protect you, but it's doing it like the guard. It's doing it in this really like this manner of mistrusting. And so when you can work with cultivating your relationship with your higher self, who we'll call this wise one within, which is like akin to this meditative, more true loving state in yourself, the inner critic can become almost like, like a, similarly a guardian, right? The guardian, we think of like Gandalf and Lord of the Rings or Dumbledore and Harry Potter, all these like kind of like mentor figures that we see who are, whose job it is to keep tabs on what's happening in the whole kingdom, right? And that they've got a good sense of that. But I don't often see them too stressed out, right? They're like very in flow. They're pretty much like all, like they somehow feel like this knowing quality. They're like all is one with everything. Like they can see the bigger picture. 
and it has the same job to protect and to keep things in order and to create harmony in the universe that they exist in and whatever. So I think the inner critic, if not a guardian, can become like a wise counselor. One person had it become their inner architect because it wanted to like help them assemble things and use its structure and that, that what was formerly rigidity to start building, you know, their new life and just start with strategies. So it's really personal. All of this is very personal and that's what I love about it. It keeps it so dynamic. But yeah, I hope that that gives a little bit of a sense that the inner critic can have a good reason. I think that's it. I think like when you approach a part and be like, all right, I believe you. Like I believe that even though I don't understand right now, I'm here to listen, you know, and to see with curiosity and compassion what you have to say and what your message is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something that has helped me develop compassion for the parts of myself, like my inner critic that I mm -hmm. historically have not liked and wanted to banish mm -hmm. is just the understanding that a lot of times generally parts are strategies that are developed when we were wounded at some point when yeah. we were younger yeah. and so one of the reasons that my inner critic got so strong around being awkward or shy or more reserved is because when I was younger, we'll call it a lot of times it, for me in my experience, it's in like the five to eight year old range. It's, it's very mm -hmm. formative uh, around when we start to develop strategies around this way of being is not accepted. So I'm going to yeah. start acting a different way. Yeah. I was, especially as someone who identifies as a male, it was looked at as less than that. I was a gentler, quieter, more mm -hmm. sensitive reserve type. And so mm -hmm one of my inner critics strategies was to say, that's, that's not good. We need to be, let's lean on athlete Mike and uh, tall Mike and all, all the mics that are, you know, well-liked <laughs> by society. Mm. And uh, so getting, getting in touch with the fact that the inner critic was just trying to protect the vulnerability of yeah. something that was criticized in my past yeah. helped me develop immense compassion for that part. Mm. And I think that all of us, the quote unquote destructive parts, or they're, mm -hmm. they're all trying to protect us in some way. Mm -hmm. And if we can get in mm -hmm. touch with that, they, the vice loosens a lot yes. and we're more available energetically to do what we really want at our core. Absolutely. And when you see it as that's my inner critic chiming in, when you see it as that's not all of me that I'm just scared or or like hard on myself or whatever, like high inner critic. Okay. Now I know it's you right now. We know who's at the, who's at the table, who's coming to play. And then it's like, okay, thank you for sharing, but there's you and your 70 other parts, right? Or seven we'll say, who like also exist and have a seat at the table. And so that, that allows it to be like, sure, we can have space for you because you are not the, the one who needs to run the show. Like you don't need to be in the driver's seat. It's not even like get out of the driver's seat. It's just like, you don't, it doesn't want to drive. It's like five years old. As you said, it comes from like, it doesn't, it doesn't want to be in the driver's seat, but somehow we've like let it, or it's like, it thinks that if, if it's not in the driver's seat, like all hell is going to break loose. Mm -hmm. So the inner critic is like, I better take care of this because nobody else is. And as you can keep training it, like higher self has got this, I've got this, whomever it is in you, that's like, this is, these are the steps we're going to take that are going to be safe, but also good for our soul, right? Because those are not always the same. Like the, the, the safety that the inner critic wants is not, is like sometimes repressing of what your soul wants, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel not necessarily complete around parts work, but I'm, I'm finding myself really interested in all of the other areas that you 
whether it's modalities or things that you're just naturally interested in, one of the most fun aspects of researching you is that you, there's so many different things that you're drawn to and, and create in your life. And I'd be curious as a holistic life coach, I'd be curious, we can start with just what are, what are some of the big influences of your work professionally? Hmm. Almost became an expressive art therapist, actually. That was my, my draw. So I love all things that have to do with creativity and expression. So I, I think I think other guests on your show have mentioned Julia Cameron's The Artist Way, but like that at 19, I read it for the first time. I think I've done it like four times since. Wow. It's, a, it's been like a fundamental guidebook and, and way of being or, or a teaching tool. But yeah, so I think I think those things, I didn't even know life coaching exists when I wanted to be an expressive art therapist. Then I moved to New York and found it and was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Love this. And so yoga also, I got my yoga certification in 2010 at Kripalu in the Berkshires, which is a beautiful place. So, so the yoga philosophy, I'm, I'm kind of a a dabbler. I I like, I like to like experiment with a lot of different things and like find same as we said, needs versus strategies. Like to me, the, the dogma, the trappings of it, the, the external doesn't always click. I don't like follow something all the way and like get very rigorous in it, but I do like to see like, what's the heart, the spirit, the soul, the energy, the feeling tone of this thing. And, and I let that kind of immerse myself in that for a while. So I'll, I'll much rather go to a, a retreat or something and experientially I I've dived into like all sorts of things that are like versus I won't, I won't necessarily read like 70 books on the topic, you know? So mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I would love to hear, like, we'll, we'll focus on yoga first, because yeah. yoga is something that is, whether I think folks are conscious of it or not, if you're partaking in yoga, it's, it's very much a somatic and body practice. Mm-hmm. It's also a spiritual practice in a lot of ways. Yeah. would love to hear you elaborate a little bit on sure. why, why was yoga one of the areas that you dabbled? Yeah. And that was one of the first ones. Um, I started doing yoga when I was meditating when I was about 19 and I hated it to start. I will be honest, like my 16, 19 year old self, whoever like started yoga with a VHS tape with my mom in the living room was like, I am not a pretzel. She says to breathe while doing this thing with my hands at this, the exhale here. I was like, I do not like this. And then we did the same tape like so many times that it became second nature. And I loved it. I was like, I want to get trained as a yoga teacher. So there's a 180 shift there, but yoga means to yoke, right? To union, the union of for me it's like mind body heart spirit all of those good things together so I love and the way we were taught at Kripalu is the point of yoga actually is to be able to sit in meditation more comfortably which I don't think a lot of people know it's like let me go to my yoga workout and like maybe do shavasana for 10 minutes on the floor and then go home but if you as you said it's somatic so if we're like have our busy day and then we don't want to just sit in silence right away because the monkey mind will be a little too agitated yoga is a good middle ground between that because it engages the body and gives us something to do and move through and then by the time we sit all of that has kind of like had a had that outlet if you will and I feel the same way about dance honestly like I like to partner dance I like at, in my dabbling I've learned some steps of some things choreography but for the most part I like like interpretive dance or like ecstatic dance or just put on a song in my living room and, and see what it moves me and sometimes I'll move to the point of like laughter or tears or this or that because moving the body moves the mind and, and the heart and I think so if I'm feeling stuck just movement will will unleash some things the same as we talked about crying can yeah a uh, past guest of mine said and this has really stuck with me mm. if you want to change your mind change your body 
And right. in a lot of ways, that's what I'm hearing is if you, if your monkey mind's racing and you just do 10 minutes of yoga, you're, you're changing your mind through changing your body. You're, mm -hmm. you're meeting the moment where it is. And the same with ecstatic dance. Ecstatic dance is something that a lot of people in my orbit have mentioned, but mm -hmm. I've never really, I don't know. It hasn't been one of the areas that I've dabbled. Do yeah. you have, is there maybe a YouTube video that you'd recommend or a, a place mm. to start for, for folks like me who haven't experienced it? I can't even imagine there being a YouTube video because it's like, it's like going, it's like going to a place where other people are dance and you just, you do the same thing you do in your living room dance party, just with other people. <laughs> so it's like, it's very, there's a, you know, a DJ and they, uh, some of them have like the silent, you know, the, the headphones or you can have your, your, mm. you know, on your own, your own noise level and the whole thing. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit like wild and free, but it, it's, uh, and then there's one called Five Rhythms, right? Gabrielle Roth, who uh, it's a similar style, I believe, but she has more of a methodology to it. But I think the premise is just like be free and be free together and, and let loose and just move in the way your body wants to move you. And I think anytime I go in that, because other people are doing that, it almost like you build off of each other's energy. And so I can't imagine really doing like ecstatic dance in my living room necessarily in the same way. Like there's something that like is a communal force that just helps everybody build the energy and get, get more excited. And, and you, for me, sometimes I, I feel like movements come over me that I'm like, I've never moved in that way before. Yeah. You know, it's like surprise that you surprise yourself. So it's cool. Yeah, I love that. I would love to hear you. We, we've danced around this a little bit, mm -hmm. but we haven't explicitly spoken about it. I would love to hear you talk about what wholeness means to you, because in a lot of ways, that's what Hearts Work is here to foster our wholeness and how dynamic we are and all the poles that exist in us. So what does wholeness mean to you? I love that question. I think to me, wholeness is, is holding all the parts. And we have the word integration, but it's not this, I mean, the integration is a part of it, but it's like being the one who allows and honors. And I really use that. I, I struggled over my book subtitle for a long time, but I chose like, you know, honoring all parts of yourself for a reason. And the honoring is like, I see you, I recognize you, I acknowledge you. I know it doesn't mean you have to like them. It doesn't mean you have to get along. It doesn't mean you have to, you know, anything. It just underneath that there's this like respect, you know? And so I feel like this wholeness is like respecting all of your different parts and feeling like they belong, like they have a home in you. There's like a home coming to it. One of my mentor teachers through the years mentioned this word belonging and broke it down into like being and longing, right? And so I think that's so beautiful. It's like, there's parts of us that long for something else that want, that are driving us forward, as you said, to your traditional metrics of success or whatever. But there's also parts of us that are like, want to stop and smell the flowers and just be where they are. And I think wholeness is like, is also integrating that is like presence and the presence to me, the present moment, when you're really present, it changes the way you feel toward the past and the future. Like when I'm really present and grateful for the present, suddenly the lens on how I remember my past and think about my future is more bright. And so I feel like that's amazing that like both of them are contained in the present anyway, but like that's because that's the only moment we have, but yeah, it's just influenced by that. So for me, wholeness has to do with presence and integration and love. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You've mentioned mentors and teachers a couple of times. And yeah. if, if there's anyone that, that comes to mind as the one that is most present in, in this moment, mm -hmm. I would, mentors and teachers have been so important to me. And mm -hmm. I would love to hear some of the wisdom that they have imparted onto you 
Yeah. One of my earliest mentors was, uh, I ended up interning because he, so it was a peace and justice studies class I was in, in college. And he, he invited his friend, John Bell to present. He's a Buddhist teacher, a Buddhist as well. He presented this blue sky meditation to us. And, and I remember having a little bit of friction with the teacher for some reason. And he and I got paired together to sit across from each other and do this like breathing technique of just like breathe in and breathe out. And I see you breathing in and I see you breathing out. And after like doing that for like, I don't know, four minutes, my right eye started tearing up, just one single tear down my right eye. And then his across from me, the opposite eye, which was his right eye, also one tear at the same time. We just like had this like moment of just seeing each other and being humans together. And it was so beautiful. So I went up to John Bell. I was like, I don't know what you just did. What kind of magic you just facilitated, but like, who are you? What do you do? How do I be a part of it? And I ended up like Xeroxing things for him for the next six months. But, um, but he, he was very instrumental. He actually was the reason I ended up in my second AmeriCorps job in Colorado. But one of the things he'd always tell me, because my inner critic has been strong for as long as I know. And, um, you know, it be like, just be gentle with yourself. And I know that sounds really simple, like almost like a, just very, very uh, simple thing. But I think wise things are often the most simple. They're not complicated, you know, just so I've always felt this be gentle with yourself. And I feel like it relates to wholeness too, because wholeness in that way, when you're, you're tending to the parts of yourself with gentleness, almost like you're a gardener and showing up with attention to nourish those things that you find there. Mm -hmm. Do you have practices for whether it's compassion or gentleness and mm-hmm. ways that you go easy on yourself mm-hmm. meditation i think is the biggest one insight timer i know a lot of people know about it but a lot of people don't it's my favorite app and i think ever it rivals the karaoke app that i love also that's an important one but but insight timer yes meditation especially for me i love guided meditations because i feel like they're they just they always have a different flavor or or, or a, a different kind of focus and that that you can tailor to your specific need but yeah I think that working with parts is obviously I'm going to put that in there that's like a, a good way to be be gentle and and be compassionate is just uh, remembering that and and I, I like to use the phone a friend lifeline sometimes it's like mm-hmm. a good like sometimes there's nothing you can hold yourself all day long but all you need is someone to look at you and be like how are you and they really mean it like they or they give you a hug and they really care and like that changes sometimes like that's you were holding something in I don't know if you've had this experience Mike but like you're like you're going around you're a little agitated and someone's like gives you a hug and then you start crying and you're like oh I had no idea I was upset but now now that someone cares like I can just like feel allowed to feel to feel all my feels and just be held in that so I like to tell friends so sometimes they'll call be like upset or something they're like sorry I don't mean to dump this on you I'm like look come as you are you know like as you are and that's a gentle thing to say to a friend but also to yourself right like you're allowed to be how and who you are right now yeah well, of course, I have had that experience before, I, <laughs> especially in the past when it wasn't as easy for me to process what I was feeling or, or thinking in mm-hmm. any given moment. There are just, of course, those times where someone meets you with that embrace and it all, you, you can mm-hmm. let it all out. And I experience you to be the type of person that a lot of people would go to with that type of energy. And then the, the valve opens and The beautiful thing uh, about a lot of this work is we can be that guide for ourselves, which is Mm -hmm. something that I'm coming to finally realize. Like, Mike, you're really good at being that guy for other people. Mm -hmm. How about about for yourself? (laughs) A little little ease, a little bit of perspective, a little gentleness and, and tenderness. 
And I think we can. And I, I've had a lot of people ask me, if you were your own life coach, what would you tell yourself? And it's like, well, there's a reason I actually have my own life coach and not myself, you know, because uh -huh. in some ways, yes, we can for ourselves, but in other ways, like we're so human and we need community yes. and we need others. And I think that like, this gets swung sometimes too much in the direction of like self-reliance forever. You know, like I, I don't, I, I kind of feel like it's a both and situation like we were talking yeah. about before. Yeah. It's another, it's, it's all part of the fabric of wholeness, right? It's, yes. it's the both end. We, we can for ourselves and there's certainly as humans, we're going to miss some stuff. We have blind spots and mm -hmm. having someone else who can mirror those blind spots and, and be a guide when you can't quite be that guide for yourself is mm -hmm. also a, a beautiful thing. Totally. Well, I know that I think your most recent degree was from Columbia mm -hmm. and Part of it, you'll have to check me on this. I don't know exactly what it was, but spirituality was mm -hmm. baked into that. Yes. And as much inner work as I've done, I was, and research that I've done in all the areas of personal development, I was very surprised to see that Columbia offered <laughs> a degree that had a, a leg or an element of spirituality. So I would love to hear you talk about that experience. Yeah, so was I, you know, when I was, when I was applying to be an expressive art therapist, I got very disappointed because I kept going, I applied to like five different programs and I went to the interviews and I, I kept getting this inner no. And there was no yes. There was just like, not this, not this, not this. I was like, well, okay, universe. Like I've tried all these things. Like where, what is, what's up with this? And it was a really big lesson for me because I trusted my no and decided to just move to New York and figure things out. And a couple years later, they invented this, you know, created the Columbia program. So it didn't even exist when I was looking for a master's program. And uh, I think it is, it was very new at the time I was in the second cohort and uh, yeah, it's spiritual psychology. So it's, it's a clinical psych degree, but we've had this focus on, on spirituality, a lot of the work was done around like therapy, for example, like I'm integrating spirituality in the more therapeutic context, because that's more, more well studied as a coach, I just kind of applied that to coaching. So for example, it's thinking about <clears throat> integrating spirituality into healing into he like, which makes sense, right? But like in therapy, sometimes we're like, a little bit more PC or just science-based, which makes sense because, but at the same time, the Columbia program is trying to bridge science with spirituality and be like, okay, but healing, faith, these are connected. People's inner resources has a lot to do with what they believe, where they're deriving their meaning, their purpose. So if you're leaving that to the side to not offend anyone, you're actually like taking away one of the biggest healing healing powers that people have in themselves and in their, in their way of being. So so yeah, so that maybe, maybe like being an interfaith minister or something, it's something similar to that, I suppose. So anyway, so the spirituality program, I think it's what you make it as well. Like they had a lot of curriculum, positive psychology was involved, a lot of different things, but it was also mainly geared toward mid-career mid people who already had something they're working with or on and could incorporate this into their, into their profession. And spirituality is a, it's a pretty charged word. I think a lot of people yeah. have a strong reaction to it. Yeah. How would you, in, in your own words, describe what spirituality is? Mm -hmm. Love that question. And I have a degree in this. I should have a canned answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it is, it is charged. It's beautiful. For me, it's for, I'll just say it personally, and this is not like the definition of spirituality, but for me, it's about connection. So it's connection to, and for me, it's three things, connection to yourself, to other people, and then to the force source greater, that's both greater and beyond, but also imminent and, and within, right? And so those three pronged things that are complementalized, but also completely overlapping and, and connection to that 
for me, it incorporates that love aspect. There's like an honoring, a caring, a showing up for a beauty of, of really extending yourself in those areas. I think when we talk about spirituality, there's also this element of meaning, purpose, feeling whole, all of those things are involved as well. So there's, there's a lot that touches it. Yeah. The, the first definition that really landed with me is mm-hmm. connection to something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Sure. And yeah, that, I, I don't, there's a million different ways you could describe spirituality probably, mm-hmm. but yeah, sure. I think that whether or not we're conscious of it, we all, we all value being part of something bigger than ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that could be as small as, I don't know, like your connection with your dog. It could be mm-hmm. connection with your family, connection mm-hmm. with the workplace, but at the root of it, now that you have mentioned, it's really connection. It's connection Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. One of them that I have found to be a really spiritual practice is connection with the wisdom wisdom of my inner knowing. Mm, I love that. Intuition. And you started to talk about your inner know. Mm -hmm. And I guess that does point to inner knowing. So I would love to hear you talk about what intuition is and uh, Mm -hmm. what does an inner knowing look like to you wow I love that question too okay I have a couple things to jam on so so inner knowing intuition I also want to reflect on this connection thing a little bit more because when you're talking about like connection to your pet and all these other things there's a feeling and I think it goes back to that what we were talking about with Buddhism like of this oneness like for me the the if we're gonna you know say god or the transcendent or the universe or whatever you want you want to call it in that way that connection is be- there's built-in belonging and and connection in there and and the opposite of that would be separation right and i think that's where we can connect it to parts right when you are blocking it and your critic hating on this part you're separate from it you're shunning it like the antidote to that the healing happens when you turn toward it and embrace it and it doesn't mean again that you accept it tolerate it like it or anything but there's this like unconditional positive regard if you will so i'll say that about yeah. spirituality in terms of inner knowing and intuition i mean this is a this is a, a big a big one too for me i love guided visualization it's i'm a very visual person in that way and and very i see i kind of can see or feel things and i think i haven't honed that a ton but i've had like therapist friends teach different kind of tools and tricks for kind of testing the waters through guided visualization on, on your, on getting that gut check, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think there's different ways that people can connect to that, but you kind of have a sense when you're resisting something, there's like anxiety, tension, you know, like your no is usually, and there's maybes, but they're all in a spectrum of no, right? Like a yes is very resounding and everything else is somewhere on the no zone, on a grayscale. So for the decisions, I guess I, I'm looking for something that inspires me, that kind of lights me up where there's like a resonance and where I, I think this is new for me to realize, but also where I feel like I can be myself and that there, there's a built-in safety there, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because I think the safety enables more expression in a way. So, so yeah, so I, I don't know if that answered your question entirely. Yeah. It's, like a, it's a huge, it's a huge question. I don't know what, that would be great if like, maybe there are people who know like, this is what intuition is, but I feel like it's always something I'm calibrating toward and honing, you know, as I go. Yeah. Well, this hasn't really been named yet, but wholeness, I've, I've heard you speak to this, wholeness is definitely not a destination. It's, it's a journey. It's yes. something that we're always cultivating and we, we leave it for a little bit and we return to it. 
I look at intuition the same way. It's, mm -hmm. it's not something where you're like, all right, I just, I found my in intuition and I know what my yes is. I know what my no is. Right. I think that constantly is evolving and it's a practice too. Yeah. And to that end, I've, I've listened to a couple of your wonderful guided meditations. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I've heard you do one on tapping into your inner yes or tapping into your inner no is, is that something that you'd be open to like if someone's listening right now and they're mm -hmm. thinking I want to know what my yes is and what my no is where would yeah. you where would you point them to maybe what questions would they ask themselves mm -hmm. or where, where would yeah. they it's hard because I'm always doing it with the individual and so I'm tailoring it to that person so it's hard to think about a generic one but I think the visualization I use, if someone's more visually inclined and can see this, is to, and this is a little bit out there, okay? This is like a little bit out there thing. So it's like a mat, it's, but it's, it's like a part thing. We're externalizing this on purpose to be able to get information that we can't make sense of when we're like all murky in our head. So you can imagine, so you're sitting there in front of it with your mind's eye, you're in meditation, and you can imagine a plant, so your plant of your choosing, your favorite plant, cactus, an orchid, whatever. And then you kind of tell it, okay, so here's the choice, choice A, I'm going to go down this path. And you say like, you look at the plant and see what it does. Often people be like, oh, it drooped. Oh, it turned brown. All the leaves fell off. And then it's like, okay, thank you for the information plant back to neutral. Okay, choice B. And it's like, oh, it grew 10 feet or it grew two feet or it turned this or like, who knows what this plant is doing. But often there's like this information, almost like a gut level check that, you, that the plant is almost like representing your body's feeling in your visualization that can kind of give you information in that moment. That doesn't mean you should like base your whole life decision. Do I like get divorced or not based on this plant that you saw in your head? <laughs> but it will tell you how you're feeling in that moment on like a visceral, like does this excite me and give me a feeling of growth and positivity and lightness? Or is this like heavy and strained? And like, that's a good gut check. The other one I use is a coin toss. All right, the coins in the air, A, a is heads, B is tails on your decision. It's in the air. Which one are you secretly hoping it will land on? Because there's always one that you're like, oh shit, if it lands on that, I'm going to be in trouble, right? Or I don't really yeah. want that secretly or whatever. So those are my two like uh, gut check intuition based mm. things. I love those. And as you were saying that, I, I was remembering that I have, I think, a, a useful practice that people can tap into, especially for your inner yes. Mm. I have been guided before to just think of a moment where I was at extreme peace in my life. Where was I? What did it smell like? What did it look like? what was the temperature, all, anything that awakens the senses. And there's, I recently moved out of New York City, but for most of my professional career have lived in New York City. And one of my places of refuge during COVID especially was walking in Central Park. Mm -hmm. And there was a very specific part of Central Park where I was on a rock that was pretty much surrounded by woods, but also was overlooking this lake on 72nd street and if i really place myself there and breathe into it and allow myself to really be there i go that's what my i, I can check in with what does my body feel like in that moment and mm. that is what an inner that's what a really peaceful inner yes looks like or mm. maybe a moment if you it, you could do it as a visualization with any moment where you felt that you were experiencing joy or equanimity mm -hmm. or fill in the blank and you could do the exact same thing for a no there's a moment, one that's coming to mind for my no right now is I was at a work event a few years ago and 
I don't want to get into specifics, but mm -hmm. the there was something being described that was around what my future looked like at the company and, and the way mm -hmm. that I could develop and grow there. And I felt that there was a clenching in my chest mm -hmm. and that my gut was kind of putting out this uncomfortable signal to me. And mm -hmm. those are those are two maybe polls where it's an obvious no and an obvious yes. And I think there's everything in between too. It could be as little as what do I want to make for dinner tonight? Do I want to make this grass-fed beef or do I want to make this grass-fed steak or do I want to make chicken or whatever it is? And just those are the practices that help me tune into my inner yes and my inner no. I think it's actually easy. It's better if you actually start with the small things because yes. that trains you, right? And so if you're like, you're starting with dinner, it's like hopefully not a huge consequence what you're having for dinner in the long term. But I started to listen to that when I'm like, you know, I've heard it with like a, uh, say you're like going to a conference and there's like different colored notebooks on the on the mm -hmm. seats. Like go to the one that has a, your favorite color notebook. Don't be like, oh, I'm just going to sit here with the yellow. Like, I hate the color yellow. Like, I'm not going to sit on the yellow with the yellow notebook. I'm going to go with the blue one. And those seem so trivial. Like who cares what color notebook you get? But like those kind of things are like just deciding like that sparks more joy. That's more resonant. That's aligned. And what do I feel drawn toward? And calibrating that on the small things, I think helps you feel like it's a muscle you're building for the big ones. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And, and something else that's coming up for me right now, because I, I don't have an aversion anymore to you saying pick your favorite plant and ask the plant <laughs> for someone who thinks that's airy fairy that's nonsense yeah. i think a really practical uh, application of that is if you imagine yourself holding a spoon and really mm -hmm. feel the weight of the spoon the texture of the spoon and first you put on the spoon something that is delicious to you like maybe a bite of your favorite cereal and you just imagine yourself having a bite of that cereal mm -hmm watch what if you allow your mind to really go there, just watch what happens in your body. I, I did this during a training one time. And then on another one, imagine scooping up a, a pile of dirt on the same spoon. And then you you take a bite of that I can already feel viscerally that my yeah. body is going, Oh, that's, that's disgusting. Yeah. And so it's really, while it seems different, maybe uh, content wise on a surface level, mm -hmm. we are able to internalize things very easily because our mind is very visual and can make things mm -hmm. make sense of things that aren't actually happening in a moment and mm -hmm. our body responds in kind so I think mm -hmm. I just want to name that as another really useful practice in terms of your yes or no and just seeing the way that your body responds to different things Absolutely. The body has so much wisdom. And that's why I think that yoga practice and the dancing and all that to get embodied is so important. I also like love this idea when you're mentioning, like we can imagine something and then our body responds is like the connection between, and I haven't figured all this out, but, like between intuition and imagination. I think that's where it gets hairy or airy fairy is like, oh, are you just making that up? You know, like, are you just, but you can, you can, t it doesn't resonate if you're like, oh, this is what I want to see. I want to see this like outcome or when you're with your parts and you're like, working with parts and like, okay, now here's the part where the inner critic and the muse hug and say, we love each other. Like, you're not going to be able to do that if it's not really happening in your system, in your inner system. You cannot just override that and you'll know if you're lying to yourself also. So it's not, it's more an invitation to see what is and let, ironically, as you accept what is, it can transform and emerge and evolve. And if you're like trying to force it or do whatever else, like that's resistance in some way. And often like that will not lead you to the, to, to the truth, right? Yeah, exactly. Could you speak to just on a, a personal level, what does resistance yeah. 
look like to you? Meaning if you were having, we could bring it back to parts. Like, let's just say your inner critic and your dreamer or muse are talking to each other and you, because you've done enough work, you know that the end result is I accept both of you. You both have something valuable to add. And yet, if you you might be saying that with your head, but your body might be resisting that. What is what does that look like for you? It it won't feel spacious, I guess. Mm-hmm. It will feel again. We talked about constriction, tension. My mind goes into overdrive when I'm in resistance. So like I start thinking and making up stories and talking faster than I normally talk, which is already pretty fast. And like you know, like it just starts <laughs> like it like starts spinning. So I think when I feel like I'm in truth or connected or there's less resistance, it's what we said about detachment. I'm not as like so hell bent on a certain outcome. And I'm really at peace with like being led and being open to the truth. You know, even if that's not something I like think that I want, because often what I think I want is like so limited compared to like the beauty of the moment anyway. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, so I feel like the opposite, I, I can't tell you exactly what the resistance feels like, but when I'm not in resistance, it feels like a river. And I actually had a dream like this 10 years ago. I had a dream. It was like the most like hit, hit you on the head with this symbol dream. And I, I don't know what I was resisting, but in the dream, I'm like on my back in a river as if you're on um, like a whitewater raft, but there's no raft. It's just like I'm on my back and somehow floating on the current of the river, but I'm like, it's pretty shallow. It's like a foot or two. So I keep putting my feet in the dirt, uh, the riverbank as the river's flowing. I'm like flowing downstream and I'm like putting my feet and stopping myself in this, in this dream. And it feels so uncomfortable because like the river's trying to move and I'm like, no, no, no. And then I get like this message in the dream. It's like, go with the flow. Mm. And I lift my feet up a little bit and like, just trust the current. And then like, it goes a little faster than I want it to, or it's a little scary. or I don't know where it's going, but I like, let it lead me. And like, that has stuck with me for, I don't know how many years since I had this dream, like just this element of surrender and, and in a, not in a white flag giving up kind of way, but in a, in a, I will, trust this trust I keep coming back to trust and maybe that's part of spirituality too right is this trust factor well that's a really powerful visual just uh I I'm imagining myself being in that river and I I think a lot of us can relate to feeling like if if life is the river that's flowing one way a lot of us are kind of paddling aggressively upstream and calling at the riverbanks yeah and what what might happen if we just let go and went with life and went with the river and Mm -hmm. I'm I'm wondering as a visual person, if you have any other visuals that you use for yourself or maybe with clients to help you feel more grounded in, I don't know, the flow of life or, you know, for example, for me, a lot of times I picture a tree and how expansive Mm. it is, but also how grounded and rooted it is. Yeah, I like any, any of my guided visualizations for parts, they all start in a natural setting. So I ask people and I invite them to picture a natural setting, either one they remember, like what you were talking about, the one that you depicted, or or one that's made up, like it's like a generic beach or a mountaintop or something, because all of the work, like we are physical beings and we see our, so I do parts work a little differently, where like yourself, you're integrated, like the self that you are, you, Mike, will be on the field and then your parts will be all around you. Like your higher self will come in, but you'll, you'll still be the one like observing them, like interacting with each other. And so what I like about that is, is it, it enables you to be in a setting and the setting almost like holds the space and the tone. And that goes back to the parts map. Then, you know, is the, is the higher self to your left, to your right in this space, in this field. But often the, the space evokes a feeling because it's a natural place and they're there alone. 
there's like a peacefulness of like, oh, I'm on my favorite beach or I'm in this park that I used to be on the swing set as a kid. Or there's just this, this, as you, as you said, like those places kind of bring up memories and, and, and good vibes. So I think that's important. And it's important that it's a space that you feel safe. in. it's like a haven sanctuary. Mm-hmm. Well, before we move on, is, it, is there anything around parts work that we haven't explored that you would like to bring into the conversation now? I think we like went very high level. I'm like, I hope, I hope it made a little bit of sense. It's very, I feel like talking about it is very difficult. It's so for me experiential and it may, it sounds wacky. So I will just acknowledge that if anyone's like, what are they talking about? This sounds wacky. You're not alone. It's a very, it's kind of like having a peach and being like, never having tasted it before. And someone being like, Hey, do you want this peach? It's delicious taste of this and then you bite in and then you're like okay I'm all about peaches like this is awesome so sometimes it's just in any way that you can experience it in different ways it, it, it will make more sense yeah well I would certainly invite everyone into the experience it's it, as an intellectual concept it can drive your brain a little bit <laughs> but experientially it it becomes almost like this inner movie in a way mm-hmm. of- right? Yeah. It's like you, you have all of these different casts of characters that mm-hmm. are driving the plot of your life and it can be really <laughs> fun and you can, I find it really it. fun. Yeah. I find it fun. And you can also, as for someone like you, who's artistic and, and likes to be really creative, you can, you can draw out your parts. You can dress up your inner critic and draw the, your inner critic. You can draw your dreamer. You can draw your people pleaser. Mm-hmm. You can draw all your different parts mm-hmm. and it becomes really fun. It, it is really like a movie. Yeah, it is. I think that's a good description. Well, one of the last things that I definitely wanted to cover with you, Janine, is, and in preparation for the conversation, I ask, what's one question that you would love to be asked? And I wanted to explore creativity with Mm. you. Mm -hmm. And the question that you would love to be asked is, what is your relationship with creativity and creative expression? And would love to hear you riff on that. I was going to say I'm going to riff on that because I love the word riff and riffing is exactly what I'm doing. I love creativity. I feel like creativity might be another piece that I didn't mention about like meaning, purpose and, and spirituality in life. Like I just feel like it's very generative, right? It's a, it's a huge source for me of a feeling of aliveness. Creativity helps me make sense of the world. You know, like when things are happening, creativity doesn't say oh, it has to be happy. It just has to be true, right? And creativity allows me to express what's true to myself that I didn't know was there. It should be obvious because once I put it on the page, I'm like, well, it was there and I brought it out. So it must've been there to begin with, but there was no awareness and thus it almost wasn't there. And so I feel like creativity in expressing through writing, through dance, through movement, through whatever helps me to become aware of something that I didn't know was already true or in me. I feel like a lot of the creative processes or creative expressions or modalities allow you to be in something for its own sake. Like you can create a product at the end of something like a dance performance or a book or whatever, but the, the process of getting there before you make it a product is playful and is, is, is uh, uh, in flow. And this goes back a little bit to what we were saying about trust and spirituality and connection is that I feel like it allows you to be like a channel, at least for me, I feel like very much mm-hmm. like I get out of my way and something just like flows through. And that's, that makes me feel like that oneness we were talking about with, with connection with something bigger than yourself. Like this is not even me authoring this poem. Like, I don't know who's behind like scribbling, right? But like, like it's coming from somewhere and I'm like the tuning fork or whatever or the, or the, the vehicle for that. So it's for something bigger to move through you and then move you in return something I was thinking about creativity before we got on this call was that 
it's less about me being the maker of things in that way and more about me letting the maker of things make through me. And in that way, it's very soul bearing, like this your soul just like has an expression and a voice. So it's also a process of curiosity, like what does my muse want to reveal to me right now? I'm also in a, a memoir writing class right now, and the title of it is called Letting Story Reveal and Heal. And I think that's so, every time I see that on the Zoom link, I'm like, yes, reveal and heal is exactly what writing does. It, it allows us to make sense of things by making them beautiful, even if they're not pretty. You know, we, we like bear ourselves to ourselves and then that avoidance and resistance that we talked about that keeps us separate and in, the, in things hidden in the dark, like now it has a light on it and, and you can show up with your pen, your page, your paintbrush and just release it and in that way, give it power in some ways, but then it releases its power over you. So you give it power to be free, but then it's like not, not festering. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love the way that you describe it. And you mentioned before that you have read and gone through the actual journey of the artist's way several yeah. times. Yeah. Is there is there anything that has been, I don't know if you want to do lessons learned or something that was created as a result of going through that journey or something you've learned about yourself, anything at all from yes. the artist's way? Yes, and it might surprise you. It was not, although I loved having it in groups and doing all the art and whatever, the thing that I got the most out of it was deciding to think differently about creativity, not just as art making. Because some people are like, oh, I'm not creative. I don't like to draw or something. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't know how to sing, but that's not it, right? It's like creative is that, that what I talked about, that generative force, that the being op the openness and, and all that stuff and expression. But for me, it was learning to like author my own story. So it was like, how do I be creative with my life as the author, if I'm oh, the author of my of my five-year vision board or whatever, right? Like my, my, and of course, like, since then I've also learned like, okay, I can't really control all of that. Like, what can I allow as well? Like that river. But I think being like, I can create and have some agency over how I'm being, what I'm doing, who I'm becoming. I took it on like that, that, that level. And, and so it actually helped me make several decisions in, in study abroad. Actually, I was in a place that I didn't like, and I actually ended up the artist way helped me like move to like find solutions to like move to a different program and everything. And, um, and then, and then start, I think I credited a little bit with starting my entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial journey as well. Like I think being like that desiring to create a life that I, that I can, you know, be show up for fully as that's an extension of who I am in this way is, is a huge honor and joy. And I don't think I would have had the same impetus or push to do that because it's very risky and takes a lot of, takes a lot of everything to yeah. do um, without, without some of Julia Cameron's uh, encouragement to, mm -hmm. to do that. So mm -hmm. I am certainly one of the people who not that long ago would have been saying I'm not creative that's that's yeah. probably not the thing for me and I'm just in this moment I'm really reflecting on and appreciating that a I'm creative and b I think every single human being yes. is inherently creative in some way and it doesn't have to be like you said drawing mm -hmm. or painting mm -hmm. one form of creative expression for me is doing this the, the podcast yeah, is, for sure it, it does feel that on most interviews I'm able to drop into there's some sort of field that is created between us that is that is bigger than whatever Mike has going on in his head at yeah. any given moment, right? There's something mm -hmm. that I'm able to drop into and you can call it source, universe, God, whatever it is. But the, I think we all, if we get into flow of any kind, and for me, sports historically has been a way to get there, playing basketball, mm -hmm. playing sure. soccer, whatever the sport was. 
there's, there's so many different ways we can be creative, even with cooking, making dinner. I think making plans can be really creative, doing board games. We all, it's in all of us. Mm -hmm. I just, mm -hmm. I wanted to name that. I agree. And, uh, Janine, one of the, no, go, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say what you said about, you know, creativity as well made me think about the word inspired as well. Like the, the reason I think it's in all of us is it's like what lights us up and we can all often be inspired by something and the root word of that, the etymology of it is to draw breath into. So I think about how let create creativity is so life-giving for me. And it's like literal, like just breathing in and, and, and feeling uplifted in that way. So I feel like it's a, as I said before, very generative. So I'm glad that you highlighted that we all have access to it in different forms, but the essence is still that in spirit inspiration. Mm. Can you say that again? Inspired it's to breathe into that the, the, the etymology to draw breath into is what, is what Google told me. <laughs> yeah. Google's usually right in my experience. Uh, it's got, it's got to be right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to that end, I know that we discussed beforehand that you, you're willing to, you're brave, vulnerable, and willing to share some of your art. And I think my favorite piece of your art that I came across in researching you was the love inside, which is, I guess you'd call it spoken word, uh, mm -hmm. poetry. And would love to hear you perform that. If you need to take a little break before, that's okay. Because I know we've been jamming for a little bit here. All right. I am ready. Uh, yeah, I will give you a little context for this poem. So I wrote it with a new fr or about a new friend who had shared with me this. There's a one line in the poem that I think refers back to this little story. And they were talking about how to tame an elephant, which I had not ever done before. I don't know if you've tamed an elephant, Mike, but <laughs> <laughs> basically the story goes that you tie it to a bamboo shoot in the ground when it's a baby and it starts struggling against the bamboo and trying to escape. It's, it's got a rope attached to the bamboo, to bamboo strokes. So it's like trying to escape and then it can't. And like then it grows up but by that point it never even tries because it has assumed that what it learned helplessness right that it like cannot get away even though it could snap this bamboo in half easily so like there's learned helplessness there's also learned hopefulness that's what positive psychology is all about so in my poem i'm i'm kind of speaking to that the, the opposite of the elephant life okay so it's called the love inside Hit the refresh button in your brain, washing away the worries like the rain. I used to feel heavy like a soggy sponge. Now it's time to take the plunge into the icy water that will clean me, washed away in the green of the sea. What if kindness was your only map? Imagine all those folks who will clap in appreciation for your restoration of a grand elation formed by one small act. It's a fact that black and white make blue, your favorite color birthed anew, blue like the sky or maybe the ocean. Our minds can so easily get caught in commotion or you can fixate on the world around you. Still so blessed that I have found you, aiming higher than the sky to the place where no dreams die. Each hidden desire a shiny gem, breaking the boundaries of us and them. What if your heart was your only guide? The love inside is not yours to hide. So do you dare to slip and slide your way into a slice of grace, forming as we go a place that defies conceptions we've taken as real, following the calls of what you feel from the center of your aching being? Open my heart. It's a start toward a life that is meaningful, a day that is dreamingful. How did you live today? How did you give today? Did you know that smiles are free and that filled with glee? You can fill a temple with sounds of laughter, creating stories of happily ever after just by creating a pure alignment. Yoking mind, body, spirit is the great assignment. 
be as innocent as a child with the wisdom of the ages, freeing all those elephants from their imaginary cages, uncovering within you those deep-seated sages. Don't ache to be more like someone else. Cultivate what you seek within yourself the liberty to express all that you are, to do what you love and take it far, co-creating this planet through your own conceptions, forging forgiveness for your own redemptions, grace and gratitude don't go unnoticed, the serenity of a one-pointed focus. Why are you an anomaly in a forsaken city? Steeping some tea to counter self-pity. Awake, awake from your sleepy slumber. You are more than just a number. Laughing, joyful, a mirror and a friend. I'm happy now. It's both the beginning and the end. A handshake and an embrace you can both borrow and lend. So take a piece of love mail and just hit send. Dear friend, your example shines brightly. Your curiosity leaps lightly. Your magnanimity is sightly and your connection is mighty. We wake each other to our truest selves when we take the chance to delve into a new angle of envisioning. Divine humans on a short-term journey, making messes, getting blessings, but learning. If you look deeper into anybody's soul, you might see their gentle eyes feeding right back at you. Their gentle eyes that know just how far you have to go and just how perfect just how perfect, just how perfect you can be, have been, and already are. Close the door, get in the car and stick your head out the window. The fresh air will tell you where to go, sometimes fast, but most times slow. Progress is a particular breed, peculiar as a simple seed. So plant it now and watch it grow. I trust in you to shine and glow, caught up in this gorgeous and generous flow. The world of love is ours to sow. Yes, the world of love is ours to sow. So come on, let's go. Mm. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing that on <laughs> on the podcast Janine you're yeah. such a talented performer and clearly such a talented writer and I had myself on mute so that I could react <laughs> <laughs> I saw you smiling the whole time I was like I'm gonna like interrupt myself to say that this is such a great moment right now but I'm not gonna do it Keep going. <laughs> and the and the part of of the spoken word where you mentioned the smiles I was I was beaming I, <laughs> that was a, a beautiful moment among many other beautiful moments in this conversation mm. Mm, I just want to take a moment to pause and, mm. and soak that in because mm. It is such a beautiful thing to be in touch with. I think a lot of us have internalized that there is learned helplessness, but not that there is learned hopefulness. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of, I forget the, the actual tale, but there's, there's a cautionary tale. If you fly too close to the sun, you're going to get burned. I, mm, I forget Icarus. the- Icarus. Icarus, yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And uh, I've heard Seth Godin speak to the part that doesn't get mentioned of the tale of Icarus is that also, if you fly too low, then your wings are going to hit the ground. Ooh, it reminds me of that is uh, in my experience, a lot of humans are worried about flying too high and getting burned by the sun, but mm. we might not pay enough attention to what, what it means to stay too safe and, and stay too low to the ground. Mm. And in a lot of ways, that poem invites me into You've got wings, Mike. <laughs> Let them rip. Let them fly. <laughs> yes. Yes. I love that. It is an invitation. Often when I write it's an invitation, it's like what my soul needs to hear. I'm like writing it for myself too. I'm like, this is the part. It's a one part of me who's encouraging the other part. Right. And so, yes. yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, there's a quote from your book, Janine, that I think dovetails really nicely with, with the love inside, which you just mm. read. And the quote is as follows. The world has a hole in the shape of your gift. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear you explain what that means to you. Yeah. So 
the world having a you a you sized hole a, a hole in the shape of your gift is is a is an acknowledgement of what we of what you said about everyone's creative and 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 every part of you has a reason to be then every one of us has a reason to be right and so this is kind of this acknowledgement that you know we have things to share and i don't even mean they have to be like our artwork or our business or like just by being you you're just you're just yourself like that's, an, that's enoughness is really big for me so as much as you're like okay you don't want to go too low and get by the ground I'm like being grounded feels re- like really like a new cool fit like let's just keep like, forget about flying can we just like walk on the earth and smell the roses you know so i feel like just showing up fully being the self that you are being connected to the truth of who that is and not shying away from that, whatever that that feels right or resonant. And and I think when we all take that invitation and do that, and it's not always easy and it's not in every moment, right? I feel like it's a, a forgetting and a coming back to remembering often. And so as we said, it's a process, it's progress. I think the expectation that we're just gonna like wake up one day transformed and be all of who we needed to be forever is like a big myth and illusion. Um, so as long as you just like keep keep coming back, it's the same way with meditation when you, get distracted, quote unquote, and you realize, oh, my mind's wandering. So, okay, come back to the breath, come back to the candlelight, come back to whatever the point of focus is, but it's not reprimanding or how dare you, or that's so bad that you're hiding your gifts in the closet. It's like, okay, you felt your inner critic thought it was safer to have the gifts in the closet, but now we're going to make a different choice. So, yeah. Yeah. Something I'm hearing in that response is that, well, there's a way in which for me, when I started to get immersed in personal development, I looked at purpose as this grandiose big thing. Mm. And what I'm hearing in your response is that purpose is something that is cultivated on a moment to moment basis. It doesn't have to be big, small. It doesn't have to be attached to your work. It doesn't have to be some sort of finished polished product. It's, it's just the way of being. Yes. I agree with that. It's taking me, I think I didn't always know that. I think like 10 years ago, I would have been like, it's about doing what you love for a living. Yeah. All the things like definitely. But I think as yeah, 10 years from then, I feel like it's more about some of the little things as well, you know? And, and also I think it's about what you desire. If you desire to be closer to the sun or do the thing, like then follow that. But if you don't desire that, we don't need to just make that up because it feels like the better thing based on what we've been conditioned to feel. Mm. And sometimes those, for me, those like that ensnarement around the like bigger, go big or go home kind of slogans or something like takes me away from the richness of, because I am more future oriented. I do like to like vision and and dream and all that. And so that's important. And I'm going to honor that in myself now. I'm not going to be like, okay, I got to just be present because like, that's just not the way I roll. I actually get a lot of joy out of visioning. Um, But I also want to want to be present with that in the same breath. So on the way, yeah. Are you in touch with what, how you would describe your purpose or what your purpose is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wrote it down a long time ago and I think it hasn't changed that much. And it is, I wrote this sentence down, which is, I live and love to connect deeply with myself, others, and the source and force that infuses our aliveness or something to that effect. That effect. Mm. So I've been tweaking it, but the, having that feeling that like, you know, you can be connected to to that purpose and allow it to evolve. And, and, and even though mine seems to be evolving only slightly, like they're, they, I think what's evolving is the expression of it. So the essence is the same, right? The essence feels very clear, but then the forms in which I get to express that and play can change as, as I grow and get interested in different things. 
Yeah. And, and something I'm in touch with in, in this moment mm -hmm. is that one expression of your purpose might just be to be connected to your inner truth being anger in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Or yeah, whatever sure. it is, the thing that you might be resisting. And yeah. so it, it does, it underscores again that while the, the sentence that you just said around your purpose might not have changed, there's, there's different ways that it, it might be that you're uh, expressing it or realizing it mm -hmm. as you continue to grow and evolve as, as we all do. I think every human is constantly learning, growing, evolving. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a part of nature and nature is always changing and evolving. Absolutely. Actually, it's like one of the things I remember learning in the fifth grade, not much though do I remember from the fifth grade, but one was like the properties of what life is. And I think I put that in my book. It's like movement is like one of the, like the five qualifying things of like what makes something alive. Right. So like we have to keep moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Janine, I just have a, a few more questions yeah. for you before I actually I get to the more rapid fire type of questions. I, I know I already asked you this about parts work and you said that you felt complete around that, but is there anything that we haven't discussed today that you would like to jam on for a little bit? We're covering so much ground, Mike. I'm good. <laughs> I'm ready for the rapid fire. Awesome. Okay. Well, the, the first one I love asking is what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Mm. It's a series of little things, but uh, anything like taking a walk, phoning a friend, phoning because they live everywhere. And then for me recently, it's singing. I'm not a great singer, but I love to do it. So luckily nobody's really around listening, hopefully. But that feels like a fun way to just express for a few minutes and, and, and share. Like whatever songs can match the moment of what you feel, right? So it's like a way to tune in as well as to express something through song. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What's something that feels like it's your edge right now? Like what, what's the, the greatest area of growth for you or exploration? Mm. Okay. So I spent the last 10 years trying, like working on my life coaching business and being like, I'm going to make a living doing what I love, which is helping people do, do and be themselves authentically and boldly and all the things. And I love what I do and I will probably keep doing it in different iterations. And my main goal, as I told you from the first question was to be a writer when I grew up and I have just published a book. So it's not saying that I'm not doing that, but there, I just accumulated like all the poems in, in a compilation that, I, that I've written through my life. And there's like 230 pages so far that I've found. So like, there's a lot of other things where that came from from and I haven't really shared them uh, so I think I'm my edge is like all right besides being the helper healers guide space for others like can I step into I love sharing that poem with you I mean it's so fun for me and that, that I wrote that probably in 10 minutes it just like flows through and it's so it's so beautiful to to be able to tap into that and I I think my edge is just getting my voice out there a little bit more with those things and giving them away Awesome. Well, you're certainly very gifted as, as we can point to not that long ago in this conversation. Your book is sprinkled with lots of quotes and would love to hear if you have, do you have one that you come back to most often or any quotes at all that are foundational when, when you feel that you're knocked off center that you might come back to? Oh my gosh. I have a million quotes. Every conversation I'm in, I'm like, Oh, as this quote says, I usually don't remember who said it often, but I'm like, there's a quote for that. The one that I can think of that most aligns with our parts work conversation and that's in the book is Walt Whitman. Do I contradict myself? Well, then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I know that you had an Alan Watts quote queued up. Ah, I love that one too. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I do. Here we go. 
It's, it's a little long though. It's, it's got like probably a minute or two. Is that okay? Is that Go for it. Okay. There's a beautiful YouTube video of him saying this in his own words, and I love his intonation. So I will try to channel him a little bit here. This existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. There is no necessity for it whatsoever. It isn't going anywhere. That is to say, it doesn't have some destination that it ought to arrive at, but that it is best understood by the analogy with music. Because music, as an art form, is essentially playful. We say you play the piano. You don't work the piano. Why? Music differs from, let's say, travel. When you travel, you're trying to get somewhere. In music, though, one doesn't make the end of the composition the point of the composition. If that were so, the best conductors would be those who played the fastest. And there would be composers who only wrote finales. People would go to a concert just to hear one crackling chord because it's the end. Same way with dancing. You don't aim at a particular spot in the room because that's where you'll arrive. The whole point of the dancing is the dance. But we don't see that as something brought by our education into a conduct. We have a system of schooling which gives a completely different impression. It's all graded, and what we do is put the child into the corridor of this grade system with the kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, and you go out into kindergarten, and that's a great thing, because when you finish that, you'll get into first grade, and then come on, first grade leads to second grade, and so on, and then you get out of grade school, and you get to high school, it's revving up, the thing is coming, and then you're going to college, and then you've got graduate school, when you're through with graduate school, you go out and join the world. Then you get into some kind of racket where you're selling insurance and they've got that quota to make and you've got to make that. And all the time, the thing is coming, it's coming, it's coming, that great thing, the success you're working for. Then you wake up one day about 40 years old and you say, my God, I've arrived, I'm there. And you don't feel very different from what you've always felt. Look at the people who live to retire to put those savings away. And then when they're 65, they don't have any energy left. They're more or less impotent. They go out and rot in some old people's senior citizens community because we've simply cheated ourselves the whole way down the line. If we thought of life by an analogy with a journey, with a pilgrimage, which had a serious purpose at that end, and the thing was to get to the thing at the end, success or whatever it is, or maybe heaven after you're dead, but we missed the point the whole way along. It was a musical thing, and you were supposed to sing or to dance while the music was being played. Oh, that is so fucking good. <laughs> I have chills the whole time I was reading it. Oh, I love it. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's joyful. It's also really sad at mm-hmm. the same time. Mm-hmm. You did a beautiful job of carrying a certain intonation for when it was supposed to be funny. And at the end, it is, I, I actually do grieve for there are parts of me that have already drifted through life in that in that way right Mm -hmm. it's time to graduate first grade and now it's for second grade Mm -hmm. and then the point of life is to just graduate to the next thing and we forget to play the music of life the whole way along and yeah I I grieve in my own life for those those moments that I let slip away because I was too busy only focusing on the future and I have also grieved, yeah, I've like felt that regret or the lament often, but then when I'm present, again, I'll reiterate what I said before, when, when I do get present and then I can open to the gratitude or beauty of this moment, it almost like forgives all the other moments that I was forgetful. It like just washes them away. It's like, but I'm here now. And as soon as I'm here now, it's like, I've always been here because presence is eternal. It's like, it's eternal and it's now all at once, you know? So it's cool. Yeah. It reminds me of the poem Lost by uh, David Wagner. I don't know if you've heard that one, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. And I'm, I'm curious if there's any other poems that you would like to present or books that you've read. Obviously, mm-hmm. you don't need to recite an, another one, but mm-hmm. just things I can link to for the listener sure. to, 
Go to. Sure, sure, sure. So learned hopefulness. I mentioned that concept. There's a book by it by Dan Tomasulo and his memoir. I think it's Confessions of a Former Child is also hilarious. So those are good books. Julia Cameron, we talked about the artist way. Mary Oliver, Devotions. I love, I love Mary Oliver. Khalil Gibran, The Prophet, famous one. I love his work. Bird by Bird, Anne Lamott, Lessons on Writing and Life. Hilarious. Annie Dillard, The Writing Life and Abundance as a recent compilation of essays. And last but not least, Love Poems from God by translated by Daniel Ladinsky is also a favorite of mine. Beautiful. Well, we've had such a, a full and rich conversation. I have just one more question for you, Janine. But before that, where would you invite people to connect with you? We've mentioned your book. Mm -hmm. You have a website. You have beautiful meditations. So I would love to hear you name all of those things so I can link and sure. the listeners to your beautiful work. Yeah, my website is pretty comprehensive. It has links there to my meditations on Insight Timer. It has links to when I do any coaching group programs as well as the one-on-one, -on -one, all that information is there. The book is linked there too. So I think all of those links can be found, but I think the website also is pretty comprehensive one-stop shop for all that, which is janinesarundalo.com. Awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. And the very final question that I ask, which I know that you know is coming, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning, and mm -hmm. I would love to hear in your words, what does it mean to live a meaningful life? Hmm. I think I've already answered it, Mike. I know it's the grand finale, yeah. but I feel like it's like you have to live aligned with your wholeness, your truth, to feel connected to your purpose in terms of what inspires you to and also to like, I've only used the word love once in this conversation, but honestly, I feel like it all boils down to that. Like that is very central and dear to my heart is just finding that love for yourself, for, for that, 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 which is bigger than you that connects you to that spaciousness and, and, and that compassion for others as well. And I think that's, that's what me, a meaningful life is for me is one where you are, you give and receive a lot of love. <laughs> Well, Janine, I love the way that you approach life and development and that you you named that what works for you and, and for you, it might be visioning and, and planning for this, this big future and having high aspirations. That might not be true for everybody. Absolutely. And I don't think that that gets enough uh, credit paid to it in mm -hmm. our space. Mm -hmm. You have so many different, which I tried to capture in this conversation, there's so many different things that intersect with each other around what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, what it means to be whole. And it was such a pleasure to interview you and to get to know more about you in doing the homework on you. It's one of the reasons that I love doing this so much is that I get to immerse myself in the world of people who I really admire. And there's, there's a lot. If we just, if the only thing we got out of this conversation was any little snippet from any given moment, mm -hmm. I think all of those would already make for a rich conversation. And we had so many of those moments. So I really appreciate you being here, Janine. I know that also uh, before we jumped on today, that it wasn't necessarily, uh, you weren't in the best space in, in your home and for you to you really were able to still land here and, and bring such an epic conversation thank you so much and I, I said this at the beginning and I'll reiterate like that you do so much homework and research behind the scenes but that that demonstrates your care your curiosity you have like it takes a lot to ask the questions you're asking and make someone feel comfortable to be seen and I felt that from our emails and our, our first call is like I felt like you really helped me bring out this like my truth and myself and feel very 
very good doing that like just very seen and like you you mentioned it one more like oh I see you as an artist I was like oh my gosh how did you get that like I thought I've been hiding that so like thank you Mm -hmm. for seeing all of these things and asking me all these beautiful questions and jamming and sharing your your stories and your heart and and making this space available to and these conversations to to others so I really appreciate being able to talk to you today about all these things Thanks so much, Janine. You are very much an artist. I, I hope people, can, people get a sense of that from today's conversation. Uh, and, and to all the listeners, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. I hope that you realize that you're a creative, whole, beautiful expression of a human and take very good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.